welcome back. It's Tuesday, so according to my promises, here's another podcast. Shucks, we officially launched this thing Saturday night, so I doubt if many listeners are fully caught up with the four podcasts already presented. But a promise is a promise, and besides, I've had some fun topics on my mind. The spike we've experienced in the past few days is heartwarming. Thank you to every listener, especially those who have already offered donations. Trust me, this is quite a project for myself and my programmer, Jared Butters, and we'll take all the support we can get. I'm working on offering a cool perk or gift to give uh, anyone who donates 20 bucks or more, but we're still working out details. I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll make it retroactive to our launch date. Maybe we'll do something like all those fundraising websites and offer a, a free copy of the next 10 issues book to those who donate $50 or more, or uh, a free audio for those who donate 100 or more, or both for $150. i am just making this up as I go. Obviously, there's no obligation. All these books and audios will be cheaper to wait and purchase after they're done. But if you like what we're doing, if you like the concept and direction and quality, maybe you want to play a role in making it happen. Or not. Either way, these weekly podcasts will remain free. One person asked how I obtained such a cool URL, foreverlds.com. To me, I wonder if it comes off a little pretentious. The fact is that I've owned that URL for well over a decade. It used to be associated with my first website, seeheimerdinger.com. Now it becomes the URL of this podcast. So what does it mean, Forever LDS? Is that like a testimony, proclaiming we will be Forever LDS? Sure, I'll go with that. Or is it more like saying LDSness, Latter-day Sainthood, is something eternal, something that will last forever? I like that even better. It means whatever you want it to mean. I just like the aura it creates, the sturdiness. Hey, and before I get too deeply into this week's topic, allow me to take a moment to thank Michael Bonmiller, the composer of the original opening music you just heard. Michael is an aspiring composer who has worked with Academy Award-winning movie composers, and Michael created this music specifically for Forever LDS and just gave it to us. I still can't believe he did that. He listened to the first podcast, caught the vision of what we're trying to do, and just wanted to be involved. He didn't even ask me to give him a plug, although I just did. Thank you, Michael. Now I guess it's up to me to live up to that contribution with a consistent quality product. I was hoping to offer an interview this week, but I'm still mastering the technology of all this, which requires the purchase of various obscure pieces of equipment and setting it up properly. I'm I'm not quite ready for that. So you'll just have to listen to me again. Oh, well. In my future interviews... I'll draw from just about every category of persons and personalities, from celebrities to scientists. Most will be LDS, but there, there's also bound to be a few non-Latter-day Saints that I'd love to bring aboard. Remember, I'm a convert to this church, and I got connections, but no hints of who I might interview until an interview is actually in the can, as they say. The goal of this podcast isn't going to change. I'm celebrating the gospel. I'm celebrating the Savior and the restoration of His church. 
and everyone I interview will clearly understand that objective beforehand. Nevertheless, fascinating, faith-affirming information can be gained from a myriad of sources, and I plan to take advantage of as many of those as I can. Those who read my novels or follow my various blogs know that I like to conduct thorough research. doesn't mean I always have it right or that I don't make factual mistakes, but I try to be as plausible in my representations as I can, recognizing that fiction, just by its very nature, will always present certain limitations. Still, I'd, li I'd like to give readers a truthful impression, for lack of a better word, both emotionally and intellectually. In case I ought to confess, research can slow down the writing process. Trust me, this is no less frustrating for readers than it is for me, the writer. It seems with every book, I set the bar for myself a little higher. I want my facts just a little more plausible. Undoubtedly, I still make glaring mistakes, but hey, I'm trying. My heart's in the right place. And one thing I, f I find frustrating is how many facts, and I'm talking about some of the most commonly accepted ideas in our religion and in all of Christendom, are not facts at all. They're just educated guesses. In some cases, they're just habits traditions, commonly accepted notions that most Latter-day Saints and Christians never even think twice about. Now, before I get into this, I, I think you should know none of these supposed habits, traditions, happens to be essential to your salvation. If we happen to get a few things wrong, trust me, it's harmless. It, it doesn't diminish the power of the good news of eternal life offered through the Redeemer of mankind nor does it diminish the reality of the restored gospel and the priesthood of the Son of Man. But it might raise a few eyebrows, surprise a few people. I know when I first learned that some of our traditions had no basis in fact, it certainly surprised me. I figured somebody must have verified these things beforehand. Uh, the scriptures, Joseph Smith, some other general authority or academic scholar, but nope. As it turns out, some commonly accepted traditions are just that, traditions. So here's one of them. And to me, it's an interesting one. We don't know what Jesus Christ looks like. Now, at first mention, some might concede, well, that's obvious. I mean, you can't walk into any church bookstore or religious art gallery without noticing that the various faces that artists use to portray the Savior all have different facial features, different musculatures. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about all of it, all of the characteristics commonly employed to describe the Savior's mortal appearance. I'm not even talking about his immortal appearance, because every person who has ever attempted to offer up some kind of description of an immortal Savior finds this effort impossibly daunting. The immortal Christ? Forget about it. Our carnal minds can't grasp it. But artists who portray him in mortality invariably use the same characteristics, or badges, as they are often called. These badges include long hair, attractive features, lean tone, short beard and mustache, usually a white robe, brown hair, although some artists of European heritage are, are inclined to make it as light as possible, and often blue eyes. 
the blue eyes we'll talk about later, but what about the other so-called badges? All fiction. All of them. Products of tradition. What? You mean no prophet, no scripture, no modern general authority ever declaratively confirmed any of those characteristics? Not even the shoulder-length hair? Not even the beard and mustache? Nope. Not a single one. So where in blazes did we get these descriptions? How come every modern artist uses these badges whenever they depict the Savior in paintings or sculptures or plays or movies? Well, the fact is, if artists didn't use these basic badges, chances are that audiences, customers, common folk like you or me, wouldn't have the vaguest idea who was even being depicted. These traditions are powerful and they go back at least a thousand years. It all apparently started in the Byzantine Empire, modern-day Turkey, just about the 12th or, or 13th century AD. The seat of the Byzantine Empire, in case some aren't aware, is Constantinople, or modern-day Istanbul. These are the headquarters of the Orthodox Christian Church, which very much exists to this day and may be the second largest Christian denomination in the world, right after the Roman Catholic Church, unless you group all Protestants into one category, in which case they'd be third. Anyway, dating back to about this time period, a document comes into the hands of Christendom known as the Lentulus Letter. So what is the Lentulus Letter, some might ask? The Lentulus Letter purports to be a document sent to the Roman Senate by the governor of Jerusalem who served just before the appointment of Pontius Pilate. This so-called governor of Jerusalem claims to go by the name of Publius Lentulus. The letter reads as follows. Lentulus, the governor of Jerusalemites, to the Roman Senate and people, greetings. There has appeared in our times, and there still lives, a man of great power, virtue, called Jesus Christ. The people call him prophet of truth, his disciples, son of God. He raises the dead and heals infirmities. He is a man of medium size, he has a venerable aspect, and his beholders can both fear and love him. His hair is of the color of the ripe hazelnut, straight down to his ears, but below the ears wavy and curled, with a bluish and bright reflection flowing over his shoulders. It is parted in two on the top of his head after the pattern of the Nazarenes. His brow is smooth and very cheerful, with a face without wrinkle or spot, embellished by a slightly reddish complexion. His nose and mouth are faultless. His beard is abundant of the color of his hair, not long, but divided at the chin. His aspect is simple and mature. His eyes are changeable and bright. He is terrible in his reprimands, sweet and amiable in his admonitions, cheerful without loss of gravity. He was never known to laugh, but often to weep. His stature is straight, his hands and arms beautiful to behold. His conversation is grave, infrequent, and modest. He is the most beautiful among the children of men. Cool, eh? One might even say moving. It really is a remarkable document. There's only one problem with it. Okay, there's numerous problems with it. 
In fact, there's so many problems with it that even the least educated scholar among us would hardly know where to begin. First, there was no Roman governor of Jerusalem. There was a Roman procurator of Judea who had authority over Jerusalem, but his headquarters were at Caesarea, which the Bible makes perfectly clear. Moreover, numerous historical sources give us the name of the procurator or governor of the area before Pontius Pilate and after Pontius Pilate, and his name is not, in either case, Publius Lentulus. The only Roman authority actually based in Jerusalem would have been the commander of the Antonia garrison. You know, that rather obscene-looking building overlooking the temple courtyard, if you've ever seen a model of Jerusalem at the time of Christ. This garrison was actually rather small compared to other Roman cities of that size in the empire, except during Jewish festivals, when riots frequently broke out. But the modest size of the Antonia garrison at most times of the year uh, was small to appease the pious Jews, the Pharisees and Sadducees of the Sanhedrin, who absolutely despised Romans. Oddly enough, Roman sentiment toward the Jews was pretty mutual. Okay, even that needs to be qualified. Many Romans actually liked Jews, especially Jews living in areas outside Judea, like in Alexandria and in Rome itself. These Jews seemed much more willing to adopt Roman customs and liked Roman technologies. It was those pesky Jews in Judea who really got on their nerves. There were uprisings and riots and false messiahs and militant zealots every couple of years that had to be quashed, often with considerable bloodshed. That's why the prefect based in Caesarea went to Jerusalem every Passover, because that's when the violence usually erupted. He didn't go there on holiday. Well, tempers finally bristled and got out of hand to the point that the Romans literally flattened the entire city about 40 years after Christ's crucifixion, even destroying the Holy Temple, which Jerusalem's architects and craftsmen had just finished a couple of years earlier. And the project was started by Herod the Great, the same Herod who slayed the babes in Bethlehem. He started this reclamation project before the Savior was even born. Finally, it was finished. And then flattened. Within ten years, within a decade. But it was an event that the Savior prophesied would happen. Anyway, there are other problems with the Lentulus letter. The form isn't right. No Roman official would have addressed the Senate in this way. The pattern of the language is wrong. But hey, the internet didn't exist back then. In fact, uh, literacy itself was pretty scarce, and clarifying information just wasn't available. So for a thousand years, this description stuck. Other sources that also date to this time period include the image of Odessa and the Shroud of Turin. But in reality, the oldest images of the Savior, dating back to wall frescoes of the 3rd and 4th centuries, depict Jesus as clean-shaven, with short, curly hair, a lot like the average Roman citizen or, or hero gods of that particular day. In other words, they made Christ in whatever image was most appealing to them, depending upon the current customs. Many Latter-day Saints might be surprised to learn that in the 19th and early 20th centuries, members of our church were discouraged from having paintings of Jesus Christ in our homes or churches. Why? 
Well, for much the same reason that the Jewish religion doesn't like graven images. Our leaders feared that rather than worship God, our members might be inclined to worship an image of God rather than God himself. This idea began to change in the 40s and 50s, and looking back, it might seem kind of silly to most Latter-day Saints, since I don't think any of us have ever felt inclined to place a picture or statue of Jesus in front of us as we kneel down to pray. But a hundred years ago, this was a rather serious matter. Some Latter-day Saints might misunderstand the notion that we are commanded to worship our Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus Christ and not worship Jesus himself. But this seems easy enough to explain and correct. Still, I've never heard of any saints who felt the need to use icons or images as a help aid to worship. Now, there is a journal entry from a contemporary of Joseph Smith named Alexander Niebauer, or Niebauer that claims Joseph Smith once described the Savior as having blue eyes and light complexion, but this teaching was never widely disseminated in our church and is not regarded as doctrine. Not even James Talmadge, author of the seminal volume Jesus the Christ, ever attempted to describe the Redeemer's physical features, instead choosing to focus upon his capacities for love, mercy, and compassion. The most we get from a modern apostle or prophet may be from Elder Bruce R. McConkie. In his book, The Promised Messiah, it reads, We know very little about the personality, form, visage, and general appearance of the Lord Jesus. Whether he had long hair or short hair, was tall or short of stature, and a thousand other personal details are all a matter of speculation and uncertainty. We suppose he was similar in appearance to other Abrahamic Orientals of his day and that he was recognized by those who knew him and went unheeded in the crowds by those unacquainted with him. A Judas was needed to identify him to the arresting officers. People spoke of him as though he were the carpenter's son, and he seemingly appeared as other men do. I like that description. I like Bruce R. McConkie. Inevitably, I think we have to come back to the description provided in Isaiah 53, verse 2, which is uh, restated in that famous song by Janice Cap Perry, the verse that speaks of a being who appears without comeliness and has no apparent beauty that man should him desire. What all this probably means is that Jesus kept his hair short, like most Jews, especially a Jew who wanted to be respected as a rabbi or teacher. He would have let his beard grow long, as well as his sideburns. There were very strict proscriptions against trimming either of these. He might well have worn a small leather box on his forehead or on his wrist uh, that was known as a phylactery that contained some essential verses that are found in the Torah or the first five books of Moses. And no gospel writer would have felt the need to mention this because it would have been the exact same custom as every other rabbi or Jewish teacher of the day. For some, this image of a long-bearded Jesus with hanging sideburns might seem jarring, 
especially to those who have grown so used to the sentimental Lentulus-style images of paintings that were featured by every great artist for the last seven or eight hundred years. At least we've gotten rid of the perpetual halo around his forehead that we see in older paintings. And hey, the idea of an attractive savior seems far preferable to the rather repellent perspective that was making the rounds in the second century AD, when Christian apologists like Justin Martyr and Origen seemed to concede the point to critics who described Jesus Christ as physically ugly. To me, this description doesn't quite work either. It would have the same tendency to undermine the impact of the Savior's ministry as declaring him uncommonly beautiful turn him into a male model or the image of your favorite movie star, and some would certainly be inclined to worship him for that reason alone. Make him ugly, and some of us shallow souls might reject his message for equally superficial reasons. Average. Unremarkable. That seems to be the most likely description of his mortal physical appearance. I know that concept is hard for some to wrap their heads around, but it may be the best explanation for why none of Jesus' contemporaries felt inclined to offer even a hint of a physical description. I mean, there was nothing in Jewish law that prevented them from writing about someone's physical appearance. They just couldn't paint it or draw it or sculpt it, which tends to make me think there was really nothing particularly noteworthy to describe. But don't go taking an axe to all your paintings of the Savior hanging in your homes. Mortal image. Immortal image. The two seem to coalesce, don't they? They intermix and commingle in our minds. And I think that's perfectly healthy. It's also healthy to know the origins of our images and icons. The fact is, any image we might make of the Savior in mortality does nothing to diminish descriptions of the Savior in his eternal perfected state. As far as I've been able to ascertain, his physical appearance as a resurrected being is beyond any mortal turn of phrase. In his first vision, Joseph Smith confirms this when he declares, When the light rested upon me, I saw two beings whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. Even more striking is the description in Doctrine and Covenants section 110, where Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery write, We saw the Lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit before us, and under his feet was a paved work of pure gold, in color like amber. His eyes were as a flame of fire, the hair of his head was white like the pure snow. His countenance shone above the brightness of the sun, and his voice was as the sound of the rushing of great waters. Now that's stunning. I'd give my right arm to write prose like that, and yet it doesn't really aid the mortal mind in grasping any particulars. The description is simply beyond our imagination. In other podcasts, we'll talk about other interesting conundrums associated with Christian tradition. But for now, that'll do. In the end, information, if it's accurate, always sustains faith, never diminishes. At least that's always been my experience. Next week, an interview. No promises, but that's my goal, my intent. In the meantime, I got a novel to write. Until then, stay close to the Lord hold to the rod,
remain steadfast, and go out of your way to make the life of someone a little better this Christmas season. I struggle, like any other parent, to remind my kids that this season is not about them, it's about Him. And because it's about Him, it's about everyone else around us, the least of those among us. Find them, serve them, and make a difference. Have a glorious day. This is Chris Heimerdinger, signing off.